Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is made possible by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. Also, the Amanda Lester Detective Book Series for Tweens and Teens by former writing show producer and host Paula Berenstein. Introducing Sherlock Holmes to the Next Generation. Find out more at amandalester.net. And the Baker Street Journal, the leading publication of Sherlockian scholarship since 1946. Subscriptions available at bakerstreetjournal.com. I hear of Sherlock everywhere, episode 92, an Irish stew. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became a stronger. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the Baker Streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, top of the morning to you, or the evening, or whenever you're listening to this fine podcast. And the bottom of the afternoon to you. (laughs) The bottom, we have bottomed out, that's all there is to it. Well, welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. And I'm Bert Wolder. And we are thrilled, thrilled I say. To welcome you to the March 15th edition of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's got a decidedly Irish flavor to it. Amazing. Yeah. Now, are, we, are you wearing green today? Um, looking, look at, no, I'm not. Oh, well, I am not. I'll hold on while you change. Okay, hang on. Yeah. All right, we're good. Oh, that looks much better. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it's, it's funny, a bit of history. Um, as, as you know, April 15th in the United States is tax day. That is the day when all tax forms are due to the IRS and you file for your refund or your payment, depending on how accurately you've predicted what you owe Uncle Sam. However, uh, until, I think it was until sometime in either the late 50s or the early 60s, tax day was um, March 15th. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. I have I have a recording of an old radio program where uh, Jack is talking to Dennis Day, um, you know, the, the Irish tenor they had on the show. <laughs> and he said... Uh, you know, I've I've never Dennis. Oh, <laughs> oh, Dennis. Well, how can March seventeenth be dedicated to the wearing of the green when only two days before the government takes it all away from you? 
I wonder, what was Dennis's uh, snappy reply? I wonder. You know, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I think that was uh, the IRS pays Jack a visit was the name of that one. He, okay. Jack was going to get audited. I've got all, I love those old Benny programs. He was a, a real um, remarkable uh, and, and influential comedian. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, he was always a favorite of mine. And just master of timing. Yeah, yeah. You know, really wonderful. Well, um, speaking of Irish stew, uh, did, did you know him? Did you know Irish stew? <laughs> Irish stew. <laughs> well, I was on very formal terms with him. I called him Irish Stewart. <laughs> you know, it wasn't everybody who got to call him Irish stew. That's true. I well, I knew him by his formal name, Royal Stewart. <laughs> Sir Royal Stewart. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, speaking of, um, of 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 nationalities, Irish, Scottish, and and even American, have you ever heard of of a particular instrument called the American photo player? No. I'm 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 astounded. I, I would have thought that you would be right on the the cutting edge of this. Nope. I've well, let you down again. I, what are we going to do? <laughs> um, the American photo player. It only played the American photo. <laughs> not not quite. Um, it's actually. Excuse me, sir. I've got an Italian photo. I'd like. To <laughs> <hear>. <laughs> so this is. This is a recording of the American photo player. Oh, it's a it's a it, mechanical. It, it looks, uh, it's, yeah, it's a. It looks like a combination player piano, and um, uh, you know, like the the uh, the, the, the <laughs> pipes and the, the drums that you would see on a carousel. Yeah. And there are all sorts of chains that the uh, that the person seated at the piano can pull on. Sound like a Spike Jones orchestra. You know, sounding instrument. Do you know it is really funny that you mention that because I believe I've just seen one of those. Really? La yeah, last Sunday I took my sketchbook over to the Morris Museum, uh, which is in Morristown, New Jersey. And in 2003, the Morris uh, Museum, which you can find online if you go to morrismuseum.org, uh, bought. Uh, or rather was given in a bequest, I don't remember the terms or know the terms, the Murtaugh Guinness Collection of 750 historic mechanical musical instruments and automata. Oh, my goodness. And this includes automata such as those that featured in the film Hugo, if you remember uh, the film Hugo from a couple of years ago, uh, you know, which included the mechanical Turk uh, mm -hmm. suppose it, well, of course, the mechanical Turk was a fraud, but, but the actual, and my memory of that is that, that inside the mechanical Turk was a real chess player, but, but they did have automata or mechanical constructions that in addition to playing music, 
uh, also did things, you know, like uh, acrobats that balanced and uh, um, magicians who pulled rabbits out of hats. And you can see some of this stuff online. And I think they have one of these um, machines there. I didn't remember the name of it. And while they occasionally play them, but for most of them, they've recorded the sound. So you can stand in front of the machine and pick up a headphone and listen to the um, the music that plays from these things. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Now, how did you come across the American photo player? Well, huh? it was a video that was shared on Facebook today, and I shared it to my audience. And somebody messaged me. She said, that's Joe Ronaldo. Uh, look him up on Google. And I did, and and um, what Google delivers is quite impressive, a series of YouTube videos that he's done. But his website is Ronaldo's Reproductions, uh, Victorian-era light fixtures, reproductions, uh, and, and a passion for antique photographs, uh, phonographs, hand-crank motion picture projectors, and mechanical musical instruments. Huh. And um, there's pictures of the photo player there and a description um, because people say, what is an American photo player? Uh, and, and as I mentioned, it's a combination of player, piano, organ, uh, drums, uh, and, and various sound effects designed to narrate the action of any silent film. <laughs> oh, that's so, fascinating. So these were, these were uh, produced between 1912 and 1925, and they were specifically installed in movie theaters. Um, and, and they have pedals, levers, switches, yeah. buttons, pull cords, um, and it would turn on a xylophone, beat a drum, ring a bell, create the sound of thunder, chirp like a bird, you know, all sorts of things. Hmm. And less than 50 actually survive. And uh, Joe Ronaldo actually uh, restores them. Oh, fascinating. So, um, well, I'm sure there's one at the Morris Museum. I think I saw it. In fact, if you go to morrismuseum.org and, and click through to the Guinness Collection, um, they have, I'm now looking at, uh, I guess these videos are also available on YouTube, but they have audio clips and videos of some of these um, devices the magic cupboard and uh, so a life-size flute player and an illusionist and uh, some of the musical boxes and the fairground organs that they have there. That's great. Yeah. Well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as a link to Ronaldo's reproductions. If you're into – this looks like he does mostly uh, restoration and reproductions of original antique Victorian and Edwardian light fixtures. Hmm. So if you're into that kind of decor, uh, it might be really interesting to uh, check out his site. Hmm. Uh, you never know what you're going to find on on the internets. No, all kinds of stuff. So there you have it. Well, why don't we give a nod to one of our sponsors? Sponsors? You mean people yeah. pay for this? Uh, occasionally, if we convince them. Well, there's one born every minute. Uh, <laughs> a sponsor born every minute. Friends, there's a Watson born every minute. Well, our first sponsor. The West Express? Uh, they are. Woo! Literally, they, they were our first sponsor. It goes all the way back to, I think, episode 44, 43. They've been with us a while. Hmm. More than half of the run of our show. 
Hmm. It feels like they've been with us forever. <laughs> I say that in a good way. No, no, they're only getting started. They're like part of the fabric here. Yeah. And uh, well, you know, as we're as as we were preparing for today's show, uh, and we'll get into the Irish connections in the canon here in just a bit. Uh, I actually pulled down my Sherlock Holmes reference library copies of The Valley of Fear and His Last Bow. Hmm. And um, it just it reminded me, you know, I, I love Les Klinger's work to begin with, you know, the annotated Sherlock Holmes. But in the annotated, you're not going to get the full set of notes that Les actually has on all of these stories. Hmm. The Sherlock Holmes reference library, on the other hand, you have very extensive annotations. Everything you could ever want to know. Everything you want to know. So the uh, the Wessex Press is the place where you can get that. Uh, it's a ten volume set. It's all uh, nine volumes of the canon, nine books uh, there, plus the apocrypha of Sherlock Holmes added on, just for good measure. And uh, it's color coded. It looks fantastic on the shelf, all seated uh, seated together there, and um, just. Highly, highly recommended, uh, useful set for whether you're doing uh, research papers, whether you are trying to familiarize yourself with some of the background of the facts from the canon, whether you're trying to understand the, uh, you know, how all the stories fit together. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource. So you can check out the Sherlock Holmes reference library at wessexpress.com. Lilting Irish tune is <laughs> only one thing. It must be. It must be time for some Irish stew. Oh, some Irish stew. Good old Irish stew. Hey, um, you're a fan of uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, aren't you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how I possibly remember this, but I, I I pulled it out of my childhood uh, my, my childhood reverie. And I was thinking, there was a cartoon I had seen when I was young that had a tune. It, it, it was sung to the tune of the Irish Washerwoman, which you just heard. Uh, but I couldn't remember whether it was Bugs Bunny or where it was from. And lo and behold, I located it. it, it it's from Bullwinkle, uh, one, of these, uh, one of these skits that they did in between the, uh, the story arcs that they did episode after episode. Uh, Bullwinkle dressed as a waiter and a man wondering about one of the items on the menu. Oh, shall eat, waiter? Uh, how's the Irish stew tonight? Oh, the taters are old and the meat is a fright. Everything is left over from Saturday night. We sweep it all up, put it into a pot, and tell you it's real Irish stew. So may the Irish stew that you have be authentic mm-hmm. this, this St. Patrick's Day. Well, lest we make our listeners constantly salivate... And, um, you know, I, I don't know how long Peter Calamai's uh, drive is <laughs> these days and if there are any. Wait a minute. Peter's in traffic. Keep talking. <laughs> well, and I don't know if there are any Irish fast food places around outside of McDonald's. So, Oh, that's Scottish. <laughs> well, I thought that was McDonald's. Uh, oh, that's right. McDonald's. You're right. Oh, speaking of correcting errors, and you're yes. right, last time. I just got to tell you this. Last time we were talking about uh, Penn Station 
Yeah. And I, I uh, definitively that. said that uh, if you wanted to get on the Long Island Railroad, you had to get uh, to Grand Central. I was completely wrong. Um, I just have this image in my mind of Chris Morley and Grand Central Station. But, of course, as soon as the show was over, I realized that the Long Island Railroad does indeed go to Penn Station. So you were right and I was I wrong. I thought so. I thought Grand Central heads, uh, heads upstate yeah, and Westchester. Connecticut. Yeah, Westchester yeah. and uh, parts north. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So you were right. I, needed, I wanted to correct the error. And lead us not into Penn Station. <laughs> Well, this was a great show. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get down to it. So, we have another sponsor. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, we, as we were preparing for this show, we thought, well, this is a. And this show is brought to you by the Procrastinator Society. The Procrastinator. <laughs> the week after tomorrow. The Procrastinator Society, which says, we'll get back to you with our spot next time, <laughs> as soon as we're done writing it. But as as we were preparing for the show, mm. we thought, well, let's let's make it an Irish theme, and uh, and look for the canonical uh, inspirations, uh, the canonical connections with the Irish or Ireland. Mm. And really, there were two stories that immediately came to mind. Mm. Um, and and one, I was reminded of your of your talk at the BSI dinner uh, some four years ago. Where you talked about shuffling off to Buffalo, and um, oh, actually, yeah, I talked about Sherlock Holmes shuffling off to Chicago. Bob, shuffling off to Chicago, that's right. Yeah, Bob Katz then talked about uh, the Buffalo connection. Right, right, after right. After I did, yeah, I was really uh, thrilled to be asked to do that. Um, talking about Sherlock Holmes in Chicago, and that gets you to Ireland. It's fascinating because. Conan Doyle's Conan Doyle had deep connections to Ireland and Irish controversies, um, s- some of which I've learned more about after that paper. But it was sort of an opportunity to explore some of that. And when I began to look at the history, um, you know, Holmes in his last bow um, explains that his uh, journey as Altamont began in Chicago, and so if you um, do the um, the research and uh, in, look at the timeline, you know, of when the events are happening in his last bow and what Holmes says about when he got to Chicago. You can imagine that he got to Chicago in the spring of 1912. And one of the things I was struck by was what the environment was in the United States and um, in Chicago around then. There were 75,000 foreign-born workers in Chicago. A great many of them were Irish. This was a time when there were only about 95 million people in the United States. And one of the things that this community, the Irish community in Chicago had, was a deep antipathy uh, to Britain. And so it was a place where there were um, a couple of major societies formed, um, which continue which which articulated and, and promoted a, an armed rebellion uh, of Ireland against Britain and one one was the Fenians or the Fanians um, which was based in in um, which had strong operations in Chicago the, 
amazing what happened in history. In, in, on the northeast shore of Maine, 700 armed Fenians attacked Campobello Island in an attempt to uh, wrest it away from British control and bring it under their control. And they probably would have, would have succeeded if not uh, for the intervention of the army. And the Clan Nagale was uh, very active in the Chicago area. They bought a ship called the Catalpa, a sailing ship called the Catalpa, in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and sailed it to Australia to break Fenian prisoners out of jail. And they succeeded and came back to New York and were greeted as heroes. So this was part of the the environment in Chicago in 1912. And... Um, one of the things that I suggested in that paper was that one of the people that Holmes met in Chicago in 1912 was a former New York City police commissioner named Teddy Roosevelt, who was there in the spring of 1912 attending the Republican National Convention, and that Roosevelt helped Holmes establish his identity as Altamont. And we know that that Roosevelt was very proud of the strain of Irish blood in his veins. So, um, you know, that was sort of how I kicked off um, all of those remarks and and speculated a lot about um, the true facts behind uh, Holmes' engagement uh, as Altamont and what the real greater menace was uh, an alliance, perhaps, between Germany and Ireland against Britain, and how the events of his last bow um, put an end to that. Mm. So it was a it was a a lot of fun. But when you get into the research, you know, you find out that, um, among other things, Erskine Childers, who a lot of irregulars remember as the author of the Riddle of the Sands, uh, and a former political ally of Conan Doyle smuggled arms to Ireland on his yacht Asgard and was eventually captured and executed for treason. And I believe Conan Doyle was one of the people who um, petitioned for clemency for Childers. And also Sir Roger Casement, who um, went to Berlin with the idea of convincing the Germans to free Irish POWs in World War I uh, and form a militia that would then help free Ireland from the British yoke. And Casement was another uh, former associate of uh, Conan Doyle's or a former acquaintance of Conan Doyle's. Now, do you know the only place in Ireland that Sherlock Holmes visited? No. (laughs) It is... I didn't know he went to Ireland, actually. Yeah, it's mentioned um, ever so briefly. Um, There's there's actually... there's. uh, an issue of the Baker Street Journal. It's a summer 2013 issue, mm. which has a lovely um, cover illustration of Holmes as Altamont in his disguise, you know, the the 60 year old Holmes uh, with the uh, you know kind of the, the 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 tweed cap and the the white hair. He's got his hand covering his chin, so you can't see the goatee. But oh, I remember that. Yeah. But this this entire issue, or a majority of this issue, is uh, really dedicated to his last bow. Yeah. I guess I'm preparing for the 100th anniversary of um, of, of its uh, occurrence in 1914. So uh, there was uh, one, two, three, three major articles. Um, 
uh, Altamont Revisited by Tad Holt, mm. The Irish Question by Dana Richards, uh, Was Sherlock Holmes Brought Up as a Catholic by Hugh Ashton? Oh, and um, mentioning that single place where Sherlock Holmes visited, uh, Mike Burdan wrote, Skipping <laughs> Over Skibbereen and Shuffling Off Through Buffalo. Shuffling yes, through Buff- that was a good paper. Mike, Mike uh, uh, took issue with some of my um, <laughs> claims, I remember, in that paper. That was a lot of fun. I love that. Well, Dana's uh, piece in particular uh, wondered why Holmes came to Skibbereen. Uh, he said, as we've seen, it's a town whose people have had a long history of Fenian involvement, both at home and in America. So hence your connection to the Fenian movement there. Mm. Uh, however, by 1913, it was no longer a hotbed of violent undercurrents. So paradoxically, Holmes chose to come to Skibbereen not only because it was a plausible desperation for an Irish uh, American Fenian, it was also the wrong place. So Holmes wanted to be noticed right you could easily play the role of a fenian trying to revive local militancy and having the police harass him and and he said in the in the quote it's cost me two years watson but they've not been devoid of excitement when i say that i started my pilgrimage at chicago graduated in an irish secret society at buffalo gave serious trouble to the constabulary at skibbereen oh right yeah and so eventually caught the eye of a subordinate agent of von bork who recommended me as a likely man you will realize the matter was more complex so there you have it that's that's a long prep time to simply infiltrate a german spy two years and you have to wonder how much Irish stew he ate during that time. <laughs> well, and that was part of the fuel for my argument, which is that, you know, why go through all that if, um, you know, as you're stuffing your briefcase full of the contents of Von Bork's safe, you observe these papers are not of very great importance. And then you capture Von Bork and all you're going to do is turn him over to Scotland Yard, who will probably release him to the, you know, his colleagues in um in London, I mean, if that's the whole point, why go through all that? And and also um, putting the kibosh on an alliance between Germany. Well, and I, if I recall that that talk correctly, you did that extemporaneously, or at least without the benefit of reading a script. Mm, yeah. Well, you had your notes, and then you, you just talked to the audience. Yeah. It was very unusual for for that. For that group. Well, I think it's, you know, it's more uh, engaging, you know, if you do it as a conversation. Yeah. So the uh, the other Irish uh, influence, a significant Irish influence that we found was where? Ah, the Valley of Fear. Ah, the Valley. Now, that that's not an Irish valley. That's an American valley. <laughs> well, again, with the Irish and the Americans, what... What's the connection, Bert, with Valley of Fear and the Irish? Well, the connection is, you know, basically through the Pennsylvania uh, coal fields and uh, secret societies and the Molly Maguires. Mm, the Molly Maguires. But interestingly enough, in um, just revisiting the Valley of Fear, I spent some time going through. Owen Dudley Edwards' introduction to the Valley of Fear in the Oxford um, 
oh. edition of uh, the canon. That's another great, uh, great resource. And I, is that is that still around? Is it still in print? Do you know? Oh, I don't. Why? I don't know. I haven't looked. Um, for those of you that that aren't aware, there was a, a lovely set put out by Oxford uh, University, Oxford University Press, Press. Yeah, 1993. Yeah, 93. Wow, is yeah, it that a long, long time ago? ago? Yeah. Um, it's it's a it's a nine volume set, and uh, the books are um, almost pocket sized. I would say they're hardcover, yeah. uh, and they were under the general editorship of uh, was it Owen Dudley yeah. Edwards, the yeah. general editor? Yeah, yeah. and uh, it was, and he it was also play. a biographer of Conan Doyle. You know, right. Dudley Edwards, and he was a, a our speaker one year. That's right. He came over to the, the BSI Distinguished Speaker uh, series. Um, but, um, he got people like, uh, Chris Roden and Richard Lancelin Green and others to, uh, edit each volume. And, and these were also annotated, but they were not annotated in the way Les Klinger annotates his with references to other Sherlockian works. These were annotated to help you understand the world in which the canon fit and, and some, uh, actual historical significances and, um, uh, and, and, and other references to help you really put all of this into perspective. Mm. Yeah, and one of the things that Dudley Edwards points out in, um, or Edwards, I don't know if he's Dudley Edwards or Edwards, points out, point yeah. out, points out in his notes, he goes back to 1881 when Conan Doyle was uh, staying at Ballygally, uh, Ballygally in uh, Lismore, County Waterford, where his maternal cousin Richard Foley had the salmon rights and uh, talks about the land league conflicts and Parnell and says that the first very discernible origin of the Valley of Fear comes from Ireland over 30 years before the writing. And it gives us the owner-intruder encounter significantly with the owner as ambusher and the author's experience of intimidation, extortion, and an atmosphere of incipient violence. Mm. And so he traces this whole um, route, um, you know, between uh, those experiences and the Valley of Fear and points out another Conan Doyle story about Ireland, The Green Flag, which was first published in the Pell-Mell magazine for June 1893, or Paul Mall magazine, and given pride of place in a short story collection, which has a lot in common with The Valley of Fear, but turns out to be more um, uh, compassionate and also has a... Well, Edward says that it suggests that Conan Doyle must have reflected a little bit more about the relationship between Ireland and Britain. But here's something very interesting. He points out that in 1886, Conan Doyle wrote to the Portsmouth Evening News, giving among his reasons for voting unionist in reply to Gladstone's conversion to Irish home rule. And Conan Doyle had three reasons. That since the year 1881, the agitation in Ireland has been characterized by a long succession of crimes against life and property. That these murders and maimings have never been heartily denounced by any member of the Irish Parliamentary Party. And that politicians who could allow such deeds to be done without raising their voices against them cannot be men of high political morality and are therefore, however talented, unfit to be trusted with the destinies of a country. So there he is very much a a pro-unionist. 
but his thinking really evolved uh, more towards home rule in the years that followed. But the interesting thing here is, uh, which I had never heard of before, um, the simple the simple summary here is that there were, if you go into this history of Parnellism and all of this. Um, there was a uh, huge brouhaha in the press, which turned out to have its source as forged documents that connected Parnell uh, with crime. Um, but that was followed in February 1889 with the evidence of the secret agent Thomas Billis Beach, who, as under the nom de plume of Major Henry Le Caron, had infiltrated Irish-American revolutionary organizations and held their confidence unquestioned for over 20 years. Mm. Le Caron published 25 Years in the Secret Service in 1892. He was buried in the cemetery at Norwood, where the Conan Doyles were then living. Mm. He'd been uh, under guard by the authorities for five years. And um, there was an account of Le Caron's death in The Times, and there's a little extract here from the times there's something almost superhuman in this spectacle of a man who could devote his life to so terrible a duty keeping his secret locked up from all companions the self-suppression which enabled him to come through such a lifelong ordeal would alone entitle him to respect the risks he ran were not ended by his return uh, to this country and so um, Edwards says it becomes easy to see how the spy who found real security only as a corpse in a cemetery near Conan Doyle at Norwood might inspire the fictional creation of a comparable spy as a supposed corpse in a country house near Conan Doyle at Crowborough. So I wasn't aware of, of that uh, possible connection between um, uh, Douglas and the character Douglas and, uh, you know, real-life character. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really intriguing. I mean, uh, and, and, and for what it was at the time... You know, the Molly Maguires, of course, were uh, being pursued by the Pinkertons, an American detective agency. Um, Conan Doyle struck very close to reality Hmm. in this in this entire story, from the detective side to the uh, the secret society side, even to this uh, instance, as you say, of someone, um, you know, having a secret identity and. Uh, being safer, uh, better off dead uh, than alive. Yeah. That's fascinating. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I, I probably uh, need to reread Valley of Fear yet again because I think it is probably, in, at least in my canon, it is one of the most underappreciated stories out there. I agree. It's always been a favorite story of mine, although those people who hold it in less than high esteem, I think, do so for uh, a couple of reasons. One is they're not fans of these American interludes, which tend mm. to disrupt the narration, but also because for a significant part of the uh, tale, particularly a significant part of the adventure, Holmes is off screen. Somebody observed somewhere that... Uh, He's away from the action uh, almost as much or at least half the time as he is involved in the actions. Yeah, and I, uh, I mean, I remember the first time I read A Study in Scarlet and, and coming to that <laughs> Utah section and, and being feeling as if I were completely out of my element. 
Yeah. Uh, did, did some pages get ripped out of the book? <laughs> and I'm in another story. It, did, it didn't make any sense. And I think in the Valley of Fear, it's that, it's that same feeling. Uh, although Conan Doyle was uh, a much more seasoned writer at the time that uh, Valley of Fear came out. Yeah. Uh, Valley of Fear was released in, what, 1914, wasn't it? Uh, was it that late? Was that? Maybe it was. I know it was certainly after The Hound. Yeah, he wrote it in 1914. Yeah. Well, the other thing that people tend to complain about when they think about Valley of Fear is what it did to the previously established chronology. I mean, you have Moriarty figuring uh, as a pervading evil influence the, in the adventure. And chronologically speaking, you know, it, does, it doesn't make any sense because Holmes revealed the existence of Moriarty, Watson... You know, years before, and the reference to Moriarty just doesn't hold up. Well, and, you know, there have been folks that have commented on that, that, you know, Watson's uh, surprise or, you know, seeming un, un, unknowing uh, expression around Moriarty was m- merely a a literary device. It was designed to <laughs> simply tease it out for the audience. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I don't know if that's uh, something that Conan Doyle had thought through, uh, but uh, it's one way to explain it away mm. as, a, as a stage device, as it were. Yeah. It's an interesting story and, and one that probably bears some, uh, some rereading. Of course, um, oh, I guess it was about four, five years ago or so, the... Uh, BSI took one of its excursions uh, to yes to Mockchunk, Ver- Pennsylvania, Vermissa Valley, Jim Thorpe. Yeah, the uh, the supposed Vermissa Valley. And there's a wonderful chart in the introduction of um, the uh, Sherlock Holmes reference library version of the Valley of Fear uh, that looks at people, places, and incidents in the Valley of Fear with their real life. Uh, Pennsylvania counterparts. <laughs> so the Valley of Fear and the Pennsylvania Anthracite region in the 1870s. Uh, so you've got uh, Vermissa, which would be Pottsville, Shenandoah, Tamaqua, and Gerardville, for example. Uh, they even go so far as to identify who Jack McMurdo was modeled on. Uh, James McKenna. And uh, the Scourers identified as the Molly Maguires. The eminent order of freemen were actually the ancient order of Hibernians. Ted Baldwin was Thomas Hurley in real life. The Vermista Herald, uh, the newspaper, was the Shenandoah Evening Herald. That was a pretty pretty comprehensive look there. It uh, ripped from the headlines, once again, Conan Doyle. In reading through this intro where Dudley Edwards talks about the Pinkertons and their connection there. Oh, yeah. And how they infiltrated the Molly Maguires. That was particularly interesting. Um, McKenna, which we, we said was the equivalent of uh, McMurdo, mm-hmm. um, had to assume the identity of a Molly Maguire and in doing so had to become, uh, had to become Catholic. This is where Dudley Edwards picks up. But Conan Doyle's loss in his Catholic faith led him to deny McMurdo one of McKenna's strongest characteristics. It had been essential for Pinkerton to select a Roman Catholic to infiltrate 
the Molly Maguires. But while uh, McParlane accepted that as McKenna, he would have to live excommunicated from Catholicism because Archbishop James Frederick Wood of Philadelphia and his clergy had withheld the sacraments from the Molly Maguires. And while theologically he knew he hadn't committed their sin within his heart, he yearned for his formal return to the church. Hmm. The Mollies, however, were by no means all of the same level of conviction as McParlane, and many were strongly anti-clerical. The priests who spoke out against the Mollies, as so many did, were knocked around and threatened with worse. In response, the Mollies were denounced even more strongly. Conan Doyle would have found himself in full sympathy with the priests' incessant reminders of the evil inherent in what the Mollies did, and yet he would also have recoiled at the psychological bullying by the clerics, however good the cause. Ironically, the Monty Maguires claimed the same freedom of mind he had insisted on for himself. So, Jack McMurdo is deprived of a, of a religion. To the end, he remains alone and uncomforted. In the fullest sense, uncomfortable. <laughs> a great, great insight there. Yeah, fascinating. And we should mention, too, our pal... Julianne Burke, who leads Lodge 341 Vermissa, uh, a Sherlocking um, a home a science society in um, in Pennsylvania. In fact, Julianne is um, in the middle of um, an effort in Pottsville at the Free Public Library. Saturdays with Sherlock Holmes from one to four o'clock, March fifth, April sixteen, and May twenty one, at the library. Um, and she's hoping that the people who come to that will uh, perhaps want to get together quarterly for lunch as a as a new Sherlockian society. That's great. Yeah, she is a Schoolkill County native, and she's been a Sherlock Holmes devotee since she was 11. And for the last 10 years, she's been traveling all throughout the mid-Atlantic region, giving talks on a whole bunch of subjects, particularly Valley of Fear. And uh, if you like to get in touch with her, we'll have a link or be happy to forward an email to her. She's just done some great things. Superb. Yeah. Well, you've been wondering when we're going to do it. <laughs> and here we are. Another sponsor. Ah. Who is it this time? It's Amanda Lester. Woo. It sounds like it might be Irish. Stu Lester. <laughs> Stu Lester. <laughs> Amanda Lester. Well, the, the Amanda Lester Detective book series uh, brought to you by former writing show producer, which is an excellent podcast, The Writing Show. Uh, the producer and host is Paula Berenstein, and she is the author of this, this Amanda Lester series. Uh, what you've got is a, uh, a secret detective school that's located in London's uh, or in England's Lake District. Well, if that isn't a, a a gothic enough setting for you, I don't know what is. But there are also mysterious events and exciting adventures. And for you kids out there, cool, cool gadgets. That was the reason I got hooked on James Bond in the first place when I was all of 10 years old, because he had such cool gadgets. <laughs> and um, I think that's why I like Batman, too, with that utility belt. He was able to pull anything out at a, at a moment's notice. Yeah. So the premise is she is a descendant of Inspector Lestrade. And uh, she's more interested in um, in putting her mind to things 
just uh, trying to trying to wrap her mind around mysteries. Her family wants her going wants her uh, going into the family business, um, but she doesn't want people to know that she's related to the the, the lesser minded G Lestrade. Right, so she heads out to uh, this this um, this school for aspiring young detectives, almost like a Hogwarts for young detectives. And you can find her her books, uh, the series of Amanda Lester and Amanda Lester and the Pink Sugar Conspiracy and the Orange Crystal Crisis and the Purple Rainbow Puzzle. And coming in April. You heard it here first. The Amanda, the uh, next one is Amanda Lester and the Blue Peacock's Secret. So check it all out at amandalester.net. And uh, Paula Berenstein is a delight to interact with. So if you have questions, uh, if you want to learn more, she's got a whole host of ways to connect with her, get in touch, and to uh, just delve into what the entire Amanda Lester series is about. So highly recommended. You know what that sound means. Uh, it means I've had too many cups of coffee. <laughs> Is your heart thumping out of your uh. chest? Wow. Yeah, between the uh, between the thumping and the echocardiogram beats you hear there, we're in good shape. Mm-hmm. Well, what makes your heart tick when it comes to Sherlockian news, Bert? Well, there is, as usual, so much going on. Um, among other things, I was very pleased to see that uh, the old stand in London, the Sherlock Holmes pub in Northumberland Street, Roger Johnson reports they're back open for business after being closed for three weeks for refurbishing. Um, I really, you know, I miss that pub. I really would love to get back to London and visit that. I remember Roger and Jean years ago uh, took me behind the scenes there and into the old sitting room. When things like that close, you always have the vague fear that they're never going to reopen again. So that was very nice. Yeah, well, and that's that's really, it, it's not only a tourist favorite uh, for those folks that know about it, but it's also a, it's a local favorite. I've been there many times, and the after-work crowd there is, uh, is thick. I oh, mean, yeah. They are always there. Well, as as they are in just about, <laughs> in just about every pub in that area after work. Uh, <laughs> when I would walk back, when I worked in London, I would walk back, you know, and you'd have to get off the sidewalk uh, into the street to go around the crowds in front of the pubs. Yeah. Of course. Well, uh, we actually sent one of our correspondents there for the VIP opening. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, Crystal Knoll. Yeah, and did a great she- job. She wrote this up for us, and it's uh, nice to see. Nice yeah. to see there. Now, um, I'm uh, trying to figure out a way to get back there myself, but the last time I was there, and I was upstairs on the first floor in the restaurant, which, of course, you have to pass by the recreation of the sitting room of 221B as you go in. Hmm. Um, but when I was in the, the restaurant itself, uh, I was a little dismayed because they had replaced all of the incandescent bulbs with fluorescent bulbs. Oh, really? Yes, in accordance with, you know, uh, energy-saving mechanisms and now, whatnot. Did they still have that oil painting? Of, aren't you the, the subject of that oil painting? Well, there's, <laughs> there's an oil painting of Conan Doyle on one wall. Yeah. And the last time I was there on the opposite wall uh, is a chiaroscuro uh, sketch 
of uh, a young Sherlock Holmes, as he would have looked when he first came down to London. Uh, and I was the uh, the model for that uh, for that that yeah, sketch. Sure, I remember that. It, it was there last time I was there under this this garish fluorescent lighting, which really took all the the ambiance out of the place. I was a little disappointed. <laughs> Who did that? Who was the artist? Um, oh, you had to ask me, David uh, David Smiglowski from New Hampshire. David mm. Hool set it up. No, Michael 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 Smiglowski. From New Hampshire, David Hool set it up hmm. through Cox and Company of New England, and I think there were 221 prints made. And uh, he sent one over to the Sherlock Holmes as a gift, and they promptly framed it and hung <laughs> it up. And I was astounded. Hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't blame them for taking it down during the remodel, but um, well, they might have put up uh, put it up next to the dartboard. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope. We can only hope. But we'll have a a link to. Uh, to our uh, review or uh, uh, impressions of the uh, reopening of the pub through the eyes of Crystal Knoll there on, uh, on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Hmm. And then the other news is uh, CBS has moved elementary on Sunday, March 20, moving them to 10 o'clock p.m. Uh-oh. So the slot is... Uh, Moving around, which tends to support the rumors that the current fourth season may be the last. You think so? And uh, I'm embarrassed. Well, I don't know how embarrassed I am. I have never seen it. The only episode of Elementary I've ever seen is the pilot. Yeah, I've been. I, I, I've only seen a handful of episodes. I just I haven't gotten into it personally. It's not my thing. But that's not to say that it isn't other people's thing. You know? Well, it's one of those things, you know, in the years ahead. But it's pointed out that if that's true, they will end with 96 episodes, mm. which means that um, Johnny Lee Miller and Lucy Liu will have been Holmes and Watson for more hours than any pair of actors except for Bas- Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. Mm. I, I suppose that is uh, – that's counting the, uh, the radio, radio. Yeah, as well. Sure. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's impressive. That's impressive. One of the news things that I found interesting was um, the BBC on Radio 2 in 1994 did a program Mm -hmm. called Missing Movies, A Case for Sherlock Holmes, which was all about the lost footage of the private life of Sherlock Holmes. And this popped up on YouTube a couple of weeks ago. Uh, which is kind of silly for YouTube because there's there are no visuals. It just, it just runs for 55 minutes with a still picture. But it's still, um, um, you know, interesting to listen to. It's narrated by Betty Marsden, and it uh, includes long interviews with Robert Stevens and other people about the production of Private Life, and it cle- it it corrected some misconceptions or conceptions that I had. I always thought the picture was taken away from Billy Wilder, but uh, they say pretty clearly there that uh, he, um, under, well, under, it wasn't his idea, but that he cut it up. He was the one who did the cuts, which, mm-hmm. I, which I didn't, um, didn't realize. And then it tells you the whole story of the picture in its over three-hour original running time, which is yeah. really interesting. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's a shame. I mean, he was devastated that he had to cut it. And he said it would have been a, been a much better film had it been allowed to remain intact. At the, you know the, this 
epic length of you know classic 1950s and 60s Hollywood movies. It it uh, two fascinating things I picked up from this is one I didn't realize that the, they seem to say in in this radio program that it was a, it was released in its three hour form, really, and then withdrawn from distribution which I had no idea of, which means there must be prints somewhere of the oh, whole thing, you would think, although they, they've not surfaced except for bits. And then the second thing was that its budget was $10 million, mm. and it only made a million dollars. So it oh, became a, a fabulous flop. But yeah. the idea of a, a time when you could make something like this for $10 bucks and – it would only make a million dollars. I mean, that just seems like the economic dark ages when it comes to <laughs> movie making. Yeah. But then they, they talk you through everything Wilder built for all of the scenes that uh, have been cut out of the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, an ocean liner set, um, yeah, just an amazing amount of construction work that happened for various scenes, all of which was taken away. So I just found that interesting. Now, is the original um, screenplay still available that would have the, the dialogue and the set direction and everything in it? Do you know if that's still extant? I think so because I believe I have somewhere a DVD uh, where they – in addition to issuing the movie in its current form, they also have the film in the best efforts to reconstruct it. And mm. I think they did that based on um, and, and a copy of the original script. I would imagine there must have been a copy of the original script. Well, you know, with Hollywood's penchant for re reviving previous movies, remaking previous movies. I mean, Ghostbusters, as an example, which was only made the first time in 1984, I think. Now they're re-releasing it, uh, albeit with a, an all-female cast, which is intriguing. Um, and not re-releasing it, remaking it. And with the current fixation on Sherlock Holmes on television and in the movies, you would think that Hollywood would be able to get behind a project like this and to recreate Billy Wilder's private life of Sherlock Holmes in its entirety. To restore it, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's complicated. I don't think, I don't think it's a restoration effort though. I, there's nothing to restore if, if they can't find the footage. Right, so it's yeah, because that's what they tried to do on your DVD. But yeah, it would be a matter of of mounting a production to do it, do it the right way. Do it again. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I, 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 we could only hope. Maybe we need to start a petition <laughs> <laughs> to redo the private life. Yeah, as a, in the original vision. I a think for that a public petition for the private life. Well, for that you'd really need Billy Wilder, I think maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't think we're going to get his help. No. Uh, well, the Beacon Society, our friends at the Beacon Society, they've got the um, their Jan Stauber grants. Those are annual grants of up to five hundred dollars that fund the development of programs to introduce young people to Sherlock Holmes, and that's uh, primarily in the U.S. and Canada. I should say solely in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, they have uh, an application to um, get one of these grants, and the application process is open until May 1st. And you can get details on the Beacon Society's website at beaconsociety.com. Uh, it's a very, very 
good cause. And uh, I know uh, Al Gregory, who is the uh, widower of Jan Stauber, uh, is wonderful at matching uh, those grants, uh, I think up to $1,000. So a uh, great way to honor Jan's memory and also to ensure that teachers and librarians have the tools and the resources necessary to bring Sherlock Holmes to the next generation. Very good. Now, oh, and um, you heard that Umberto Eco. Yes, what a February shame. 19th. Yeah. He's, of course, most well-known for The Name of the Rose, and Sherlockians know him because the character, the main character in <laughs> The Name of the Rose, the Franciscan monk, was William of Baskerville. Baskerville. Yeah. And, of course, Sean Connery. And here's an interesting trivia point. Sean Connery starred as William of Baskerville in the movie version of The Name of the Rose, and he was also in The Molly Maguires mm-hmm. in the 1970s. But um, interesting, as a, as a side note in Echo's obituary in the Washington Post, Matt Schudel noted that Echo named many of his characters after type fonts, <laughs> such as Baskerville and Garamond and Palatino <laughs> and Bodoni. Mm. I'm waiting to see if we can uncover one of his characters, Times New Roman. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Have you met my daughter, Ariel? <laughs> well, I think that pretty much wraps up the news. news bag, does it not? Yes. The press is a very valuable institution if one knows how to use it. And that means... We have our last sponsor. Already? Oh, my goodness. Our last sponsor. And our last sponsor is one of the best, too. Baker Street Journal. Read all about it. Or read all of it. You finally got your copy. I did. I got my my winter copy just days after episode 91 aired. Amazing. They They must have heard my complaints. They must have listened to the episode and sent it on. So I have my winter edition. And by the way, the rant... That we went on. <laughs> well, it wasn't really a rant. But no, the, the, no. the complaint slash suggestion that we made about wouldn't it be great with all of these uh, different illustrations on the cover of the new uh, format of the Baker Street Journal? Wouldn't it be great if you knew the provenance of these, if you knew who the artist was, uh, where the image was taken from, etc.? Because mm. uh, while some may be obvious, others may not be so. And it would be wonderful to have the backstory. And uh, we passed that suggestion on to the publishers. And uh, they may actually take us up on that. So we'll be delighted to see if that uh, becomes a new feature in the BSJ. Yeah. But anyway, you're not here to hear us brag about our success at cajoling the publishers into changing their <laughs> their mind. Uh, you're here to hear our sponsor read. <laughs> Now, of course, you know the Baker Street Journal. We talk about it all the time. It's the premier publisher of Baker of, of scholarship about Sherlock Holmes. What? What could someone get out of subscribing to the Baker Street Journal, Bert? Well, the most important thing that you get by subscribing to the Baker Street Journal is the opportunity to hold in your hand five times a year a beautifully finished yellow cover. And that yellow is such a soothing color that 
Scientific studies by BSI scientists have proven that regular exposure four or five times a year to the Baker Street Journal improves your mood, increases your stamina, reduces your waistline, adds important antioxidants to your bloodstream, all from holding that carefully um, arranged and beautifully printed uh, yellow cover between your fingers. If you do nothing more, nothing more than hold it in your hand and read it, you will uh, be invigorated. Typically, long-term subscribers to the Baker Street Journal are viewed by their doctor as having um, the age and physical characteristics of men or women uh, of a much younger age. Now, all of those stories you've read about the fact that some men will actually have physical characteristics of women at a much younger age and vice versa are not true. First of all, those studies were not peer-reviewed and used very suspicious data and did not have a control control group. So uh, just for the health benefits alone, holding the Baker Street Journal in your hand uh, four or five times a year will improve your outlook, improve your mood, improve your health, improve your balance, improve your waistline, improve your muscle tone, all without lifting a finger. But if you lift a finger and open it up, and by the way, these statements have not been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, um... You will read magnificent Sherlockian scholarship uh, that will stimulate and amaze you. And um, it's, it's absolutely essential to read the Baker Street Journal because that will give you an idea of how you can frame up your own papers and commentary about homes and send it in for uh, review because we always need new voices. That is true. That is true. Before the show started, you talked about... Uh, working on a paper in some of your spare time. I, I've, I've been inspired recently by something I reread in um, uh, an old Martin Dakin uh, book. Uh, and I haven't submitted anything to the journal in well, probably 18 years or so. Uh, so um, I, I'm not good at rejection, you see. Um, <laughs> but, but it may inspire me to, uh, to get off my, my tuchus and uh, actually do something here. So, and it's wonderful to see your name because, hey, here's here's another thing, folks. If you are published in the Baker Street Journal, you automatically are entered for an invitation to the annual reception of the Baker Street Journal during the BSI weekend for mm. the Morley Montgomery Award, right, where you would be among those who could be selected as having the best article of the year. Yes, you get invited to the annual reception, and the great souvenir there, of course, is the is the um, cut crystal and marble coasters that uh, <laughs> Stephen Rothman distributes to each author every year uh, whose work is published in the Baker Street Journal. Uh, very rarely seen on eBay, but uh, an important accompaniment to your desk. Uh, not to mention open bar. Oh, yeah. So that works, too. Yeah, the open bar, too. Sure. Anyway, go over to BakerStreetJournal.com and check that all out. Yes. Great stuff from the BSJ. And am I right in thinking we have one more sponsor? <laughs> Friends, finding time to exercise and enjoy music can be a challenge. That's why you need Sherlock Holmes brand Irish step dancing lessons. You'll rapidly progress through our three levels of skill, Martha, Watson, and Altamont. 
At the Martha level, a simple clog. At the Watson level, a two-step. And the Altamont level takes two years in Chicago to do this. It's the only Irish step dancing program guaranteed to deliver the three C's. Captivating Celtic cacophony. Cacophony. Dance your way into success with Irish step dancing lessons. Available at your local Sherlock Holmes brand studio today. Well, you know, Irish stew makes me gassy. (laughs) And uh, here's our chance to share that gas with you. This is from Volume 2, Number 3 of the old series of the BSJ from back in 1947. And seeing that people mention the luck of the Irish, which is traditionally meant to convey good fortune, the title of this gas lamp is The Fortunate Ones. It was a heartening experience at the meeting of the Baker Street Irregulars last January to look around the room and take count of the many young faces that brightened an otherwise august and rather doddering assemblage. The legend has persisted too long, certainly, that only those who sowed their oats by gaslight are eligible for this inner circle, or that a purely personal nostalgia is essential to affection for the man who stands as a symbol of old remembered times. Sherlock Holmes has more than this to commend him to the world's esteem, and the rising generation knows it. Some of the men in their 30s and their 20s who sat with the Irregulars that night were the sons, the scions, if you will, of the founding gaffers whose roots lie deep in the beckoning past. A few of them, perhaps, were there from filial piety or as a mere gesture of imitation. But there were many more who came with or without parental sponsorship and incitement for the simple and satisfying reason that they had found something they liked. Such neophytes, whether within the body of the irregulars themselves or as a part of the burgeoning societies out around the land, are the fortunate ones among us. For theirs is a wholly objective devotion, unbolstered by the treacherous props of memory. But happier and more fortunate still, if we stop to consider, are those virginal souls, young and old alike, who have never read the tales of Sherlock Holmes at all. Here's the optimum of all potential. For them, the world has not begun And they have yet to live. Think what it is that they have before them. We who have wisdom in the lore would not give up one whit of what we acquired. But for all these others, the joy that we have known is promised in the very fact of acquisition. It is a joy that we would know anew. If only ignorance could be recaptured and innocence restored... What ransom would we pay if we could wonder once again at the meaning of the task poor Jabez Wilson had been called upon to do? If we 
could speculate upon the sinister and mysterious significance of the dancing men. Oh, and how we would delight to find ourselves bewildered by the tiny footprints in the attic of the house where Bartholomew Sholto had died in agony. Or by the cryptic references to the gypsy band that roamed the neighborhood of Stoke Moran. These are the voyages of great discovery that we can never take again. Footprints? Footprints. A man's or a woman's? We know the epic answer. But how we wish that we did not. <laughs> Good old Edgar. Yeah, well done. I think there's a line in the grace that said at the Speckled Band of Boston oh, about yeah. uh, those who have yet to be born. How, how we, we envy, envy them. them. My mind rebels at stagnation. Give me problems. Give me work. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram, the most intricate analysis, and I'm in my proper atmosphere. Then I can dispense with artificial stimulants. But I abhor the dull routine of existence. I crave mental exaltation. Welcome to the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere quiz program called Mental Exaltation. If you've ever listened to NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or Weekend Edition Sunday with Puzzle Master Will Shorts, you are familiar with our format. But... Just in case you haven't listened to those, each episode we post a qualifying question on our website, IHearOfSherlock.com, and of all the correct answers submitted, one individual will be chosen at random to become a contestant on Mental Exaltation. We sometimes vary the format of the quiz show, so certain episodes you'll have our interview guests who will be put to the test on behalf of the contestants. And on other episodes like this one, we'll call the contestants directly, put them on the phone, and hold their feet to the fire. So, this week, we're proud to welcome Al Gregory from Verona, New Jersey. Well, Al, welcome to the program. Thank you. How you been, Al? I'm doing great. I'm doing absolutely great. I yeah. just got a really... I collect the Hounds of the Baskerville in foreign languages, oh. and I now have it in 46 languages, and Julie and I are going to Spain in a couple of months, and I hope to pick it up in Basque and Gallego, two new languages, which makes me happy. But recently, I got a copy of The Hound of the Basketballs in Hebrew, which I already have a couple of uh, versions of. But this one was done in 1929, and the vendor says this was the first one ever done in Hebrew. So I'm very pleased to add that to the Houndian collection. Wow, congratulations. That's a, Thank you. a feather in your cap, right? Yeah, yeah. I've got over 400 editions of the hound i can't match don hobbs he's got 104 languages well i'm only up to 46 but it's, it's fun collecting these all the same even that's if i never cool. catch up to the old horse trader <laughs> that's all right i mean it's 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 <laughs> concentrated it's a niche and uh, it gives you something to do so i love yeah it. absolutely absolutely yes so you qualified for the quiz uh back when we asked it i think we asked on uh february 28th uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. He asked me about the Royal Mallows. Yeah, we asked um, what real Irish regiment inspired the canonical regiment 
right. the Royal Mallows. Of course, that was in uh, The Crooked Man. Right. And do you remember your answer? Yeah, the answer was the Munsters. Yeah, just like Herman Munster, yeah. <laughs> Munster was actually one of the original five counties of uh, Ireland. It no longer exists, I think. It's been divided up. But that was actually an actual county way back when in the early Middle Ages. Wow. Well, that was even more information than we required. So it's no question why you were selected among the uh, the, the many correct answers for the qualification. Okay. So this means that you're going to play the official version of Mental Exaltation. Okay. So we've been talking about Sherlock Holmes and the Irish connection in this episode as St. Patrick's Day is coming up. Right. But we're going to take you back to the canon itself for this quiz. No tricks, okay. no no games, just three questions about the short story, His Last Bow. Okay. And if you answer two of them or more correctly, you'll win one of our prizes from the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere Great Big Grab Bag of Gifts or the IHO's GBGBs. Great. I look forward to getting that Beaton's Christmas Annual. <laughs> so are you prepared? Absolutely and positively. Here we go. Question number one. Which of the following pieces of military equipment is not mentioned by Von Bork when cataloging the secrets he has received from Altamont. Okay. A. Turbans. B. Battleships. C. Naval signals. I would say turbans. That is correct. All right, you're you're one third of the way there, or even half the way there, if you uh, if you right. manage to get two another three, one right. Yeah. So here I we like go. I like the thing as a matter of personal. I love ego, it. But I love it. Okay. Don't, don't keep us in suspense. Let's get this taken care of in question two. All right. His last bow is one of the few stories with a subtitle. What is it? A. Oh. The last Sherlock Holmes story. B. The War Service of Sherlock Holmes. C. A good, not great story of Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to take a semi guess here and say the War Service. That is also correct, Al. So good news, you are you are on your way to receiving our prize. Well, let's see if we can wrap this up and make you go three for three. If the luck of the Irish are with you, absolutely. Here we go. While Holmes and Watson stand upon the terrace for. A last quiet talk. What is Von Bork, the captured German spy, doing? A. We cannot be sure, since the narrator does not offer that information. B. Trying in vain to undo the bonds that hold him. Or C. Calmly listening to the two men talk easily about the I would past. say I, I would say B. Trying to undo the bonds... I recall the passage, something like struggling on the on the sofa or something like that. That is also correct, Al. We also would have accepted uh, nothing. He's still knocked out by the chloroform. Okay. So, okay. But that is wonderful. I mean, you've done the not the impossible, but the improbable. You've gotten all three questions correct. Well, I'm pleased to have done it. I'm certainly pleased to have played, and I'm certainly pleased to have been chosen. That's great. Well. Uh, with with a name like uh, Al Gregory, I was going to say uh, 
O'Gregory, but that's not that's not your given name. Uh, you, you sound like you have some Irish in you. Is, no, is there actually, any? No, no, actually not. I did a DNA test uh, with National Geographic uh, a few years back, and it confirmed two parts of my DNA, which I always suspected. I always suspected I had Nordic blood in me, and I always suspected I had Central Asian blood in me, and the DNA test confirmed both of those. With the Central Asian blood, I have ancestors who came from either Tajikistan or Iran. Tajikistan is one of the former Soviet Central Asian republics. So it means that somewhere up the line, even though I'm ethnically Jewish, I had Muslim ancestors. And the other parts of my DNA were Mediterranean, which could be almost anything. Mm. And then also Denisovan, which is not a word you're likely to know. The Denisovan were a small population who lived in northeastern Asia. I figure somewhere above the Korean Peninsula. I've got about 2% of that. And like all Caucasian people, I've got about 2% of Neanderthal uh, blood in me. So I'm quite a little mixture here. Well, it's, it's clear why you're collecting foreign editions of The Hound. I, I like that theory. I like that theory. <laughs> well, you've done well here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere on, on mental exaltation. So we, the whole team, thank you for participating and hope to hear from you more in the future. Well, thank you very much. Well, you know, I I realized one thing uh, we forgot to do this whole show. Oh, yes, yes. This this seems as good a time to do it as any. Yes, yes. Uh, Folks want to get in touch with us. Oh, my goodness. That's right. My my inkling is that they really don't. But just in case, (laughs) uh, if you'd like to see what goes down on the pages of I Hear of Sherlock everywhere, get on over to IHearOfSherlock.com. Check out the website. You'll have newsy updates in between and and even some commentary in between our shows. The shows, of course, air the 15th and 30th of every month. Uh, Every other show is an interview show. Uh, The others are, sadly, like this one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But in the meantime, you can also reach out on the method of your choice. If email is your thing, Mm. uh, what's our email address again? Our email address is uh, uh, I hear of Sherlock at uh, I hear of Sherlock. Uh, comment at I hear of Sherlock dot com. Okay, comment at I hear of Sherlock dot Never, never cue up the guy who's not prepared with his notes, ladies and gentlemen. That's well, that's what we're learning here. That's all right. I much prefer communicate. If you could find a hollow log in the forest, just tap out using that acoustic alphabet that we all learned in grade school. I hear of Sherlock. And uh, believe me, the trees in our forest will communicate your message back to us. That would work. Yeah. That would work. As, it all as, works. As as would the phone. If you if you actually still have a phone with those with, with a keypad and know how to actually press it to your ear and speak into it. Yeah. I know it's a it's a lost art, um, but it is still possible, kids. Yes. You you dial us up at seven seven four two two one read. Mm. That's 774-221-7323. And then, of course, on all of the social web, we are I Hear of Sherlock. Yep. Um, we, have, we have yet to establish a Snapchat account. Uh, I can't really see us doing that anytime soon. But uh, you never know. You never know. You never know what's out there. We don't want to you know, miss, a, miss an important link. 
And friends, if like many of our listeners, you happen to be traveling to or traveling back from the International Space Station, when you get up there, we are number one on their speed dial. (laughs) So that's another great uh, spot. If you're in zero gravity to communicate back to us, we want to hear from you. Indeed. And and even if you're at full gravity, we'd, we'd love to hear from you when you get back to Earth, too. Yeah. Uh, so feel free to uh, reach out when it makes sense for you on the platform that it does make sense to you. Yeah. And if you're on the platform, be sure you're standing on the east side of the platform, not the west side, because it's the east side that goes into New York. <laughs> if you stand on the west side of the platform, you're going to find yourself in Washington. Uh, and yes. I wouldn't recommend anyone go to Washington today. Especially if you're taking the train from Europe. Well, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, just think of the confusion you'd cause at Paddington if you tried to get on the train to Washington. (laughs) First of all, you don't want to alarm a little bear, particularly one who comes from darkest Peru. So there you are. Indeed. Indeed. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, We look forward to joining you again on episode 93. When we're joined by, once again, I think this is, this is going to be the record for them. Bob Katz oh. and Andy Solberg, mm. editors of Nerve and Knowledge, the latest uh, production from uh, the BSI Press. Yeah. So, but in the meantime, this is Scott Monty. Oh, and this is Bert Wolder. And together we say, The, the Games... A foot! I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you know, when I, was, uh, when I was young, I had a friend whose family was of Irish heritage, and uh, my mother, you know, of course, is of Polish stock, and had a lot of Italian friends as well, so her cooking... It's just a wonderful uh, cornucopia of flavors, and she was an excellent cook. And uh, the friend of of the Irish extraction came over and was astounded. And we were talking about family cooking, and he said, well, you have to understand, my mother only uses Irish spices. (laughs) And my mom had never heard this before. She said, Irish spices, what are those? And he said, salt, pepper, and butter. (laughs) 